Hello and welcome to Not A Buffalo, the show where we discuss the science and technology that will save the world. My name's Ben and welcome to the only podcast guaranteed to usually be buffalo free. This is Jack and he makes no guarantees about buffalo under any circumstances, podcasting or otherwise. Jack, how are you? I'm alright. Um, yeah, I've, I've not had a whole lot of access to buffalo because I live in a tiny village. Or I don't, one of the two. And that village may or may not be near Buffalo, but from what we understand from what you're saying is it's probably not near Buffalo, but we can't guarantee anything. Yeah, you were there with me on, on the Great Plains of Kapuka um, that day when we decided to name the podcast Not Buffalo, because there weren't any buffalo. I think that's a story that we're going to save for our autobiography, though, when we release it, when this show is a massive success. Oh. But there's a yeah, teaser, true. there's some foreshadowing for you, audience. Yeah, oh man, and the shadows were huge. And uh, I understand you have some very exciting stories for us this week, month. Yeah, yeah, so exciting that we're re-recording this podcast right now. So good we made it twice. Because we forgot to do the sound check. So for any of you budding podcasters out there, do the sound check at the start and make sure you're using the correct, or rather make sure your recording program is using the right microphone, because really it was the recording program's fault. Yeah, let's go with that. That's definitely, (laughs) it's my fault. It was my fault for not checking it. You know, it's a good excuse to spend more time with my Ben. Yay! That's always good. If you like, I have a first story for you. I'd love to hear it. I know I'm breaking format by not waiting for you to ask me about it, but I... Oh no, I did, like 20 minutes ago, remember? (laughs) Oh, I do remember that. That was... (laughs) That was fun. Yeah, so my first story is about the creation of an element that we've created before, but that hadn't been created for, like, several decades last time it was done was in the uh, 1970s. Oh, you must be talking about Einsteinium. I am talking about Einsteinium indeed. See, listeners, you can't tell that we're re-recording <laughs> I just really know my elements. You're like an index of elementary particles, really, aren't you? I say Berkelium and you're all like, atomic number? Yes. Atomic number, yes. It does have an atomic number, I can confirm. <laughs> Somewhere below 2,000. I really enjoy talking to you. (laughs) (laughs) The feeling is mutual. You look so like a podcaster now that you have a beard. I like that that's what did it. Not the podcasting mic that's covering up half my face, but it's the beard that's covering up the other half of my face. It's the beard around the mic. (laughs) You know, it's that combination. I always thought beards must be really good for sound absorption. I don't know. I have podcasts without a beard. I don't think i've noticed a difference in audio quality between when i had a beard and when i didn't i think you sound better with a beard do i sound more authoritative no just more podcasty okay you sound more like a podcaster i think part of it is that you look more like a podcaster but the main thing is you just the beard just gives you that sound okay in that case i'll go into full podcast mode and tell me jack why are they looking at einsteinium again basically because we don't know that much about it or Well, didn't know that much about it. It's one of those elements which decays very, very rapidly and is also kind of difficult to study, partly because of that, partly because, you know, it's very radioactive. (laughs) The element that decays to this particular isotope, which is 254, decays to berkelium, which is also very radioactive and gives off very nasty gamma radiation. So That's the bad one. Definitely a worse radiation than light. It's pretty difficult to study because of that. You know, you've also got the issue that if you're studying any amount of it, because it's constantly decaying, because it's it's radioactive, you're losing an amount of it every month. So if you lose 7.2% of your mass every month. So that's quite a significant difference, you know. I wish I had that weight loss record. I'm going to ask you to take us back a little bit. So how did we first discover Einsteinium? Oh, uh, hydrogen bombs. 
I hope that's all the information you need. Could you give us a little bit more context? As far as I'm aware, no one's ever actually used a hydrogen bomb, have they? They've been tested. They have been tested, okay. Yeah, so the the H-bomb has been tested. And in the various wreckage that that created, (laughs) Einsteinium was created. So the first Einsteinium was created in 1952, which was when the first hydrogen bomb test was. The element doesn't occur naturally on Earth, and we can only really produce it in, like, microscopic quantities. So this particular study, they used a nuclear reactor that's specially designed for this. It came out of Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, which is known as Berkeley Lab, colloquially. Are they the ones who discovered Berkelium? I honestly have no idea. I would guess that there's a connection there, but I I honestly do not know. It seems like one of those elements, because I think it's not super far from Californium on the table. As the index of elements, I can tell you that you are correct. Am I? Have you googled it? I'm just guessing and hoping. I can always cut this bit out if I'm wrong. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Californium is number 98. Berkelium. Number 99. Number 97. I was close. I'll, I'll take that. The heavier elements are often like... You get them in in clumps geographically because those were the centers of research at the time when that bit of chemistry was being uncovered, you know, because everyone knew that, you know, we expect another element here and here in the periodic table. I think you're even told that at school. Yes. Of course, when that that research is actually being done, because what you do to create heavier elements, you just fire neutrons and protons at an existing heavy element and you hope that something sticks. That's largely how all of that research was done. Sometimes you have to get a very intense source of radiation to do it, and that's why this is happening inside a nuclear reactor, creating this Einsteinium. But it's largely speaking the same method as we were doing, what, 70, 80 years ago? Wow. The first attempts at this were just before World War Two, I think, because that's all the stuff that involved uh, Lisa Meitner, the German physicist. That's very cool. And what's renewed the interest in Einsteinium now? Is it... Just we don't really know that much about it, and <laughs> I realise we haven't looked at it for 50 years. Well, the article I'm, I'm looking at, which is Life Science, actually has a section on, <laughs> on this, which is, it's just very hard to study. Okay. We don't know a lot about it. We don't know a whole lot about its basic chemical properties. And so this is a piece of sort of fundamental research, because no one knows that much about it. You know, you have predictive models, so you know certain things about it, like its atomic weight and the orbits of its electrons and how they'll be arranged and stuff. But, for example, its bond length was totally out of what was expected. Okay. That classic thing of, like, yeah, you can predict and you can theorise as much as you want, but you have to do an experiment to find out whether it's true. It's what... Richard Feynman always used to say, you know, it doesn't matter who you are or how beautiful your theory is. If your theory disagrees with the experiment, it's wrong. <laughs> and he said it like that. I love Richard Feynman. Well, Richard Feynman has like a heavy New Jersey, New York accent, and it's great. <laughs> I love watching his lectures. I think they're amazing. So this is kind of getting back to a fundamental understanding of the elements and, and the world around us. Yeah. Fundamental science is it's the best kind of science. I love it. I have a bit of very... Practical science, although at the moment it is still very much in fundamental stages. You segueing? Are you segueing? Uh, if you have nothing else to add about Einsteinium. I, ben, I'm happiest when I'm in a segue with you. That's my life. Duck in a segue with you. Do, 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 do. We need to release a covers album. Right, keep an eye out for that, listeners. That'll, that will be coming sometime in the next few 
decades. I just have to learn to sing or play an instrument. Then the man of iron promises. <laughs> so our friends at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, which I believe we've seen quite a lot of research from on this podcast. They do some eye-catching yeah. experiments, I think. But they have been looking at stem cells. Ooh. So for those of you who don't know, stem cells are uh, regenerative cells. They're kind of like fundamental cells that can turn into other types of cells. So you might get, uh, and I'll go into a little bit more detail about how, how they work, uh, but essentially you tend to only find them in embryos, which then as the embryo develops and they turn into heart and lungs and skin and eyes and, and things like that. So there's something that we've been looking at a lot. I, I say we, scientists and far more educated people than I, uh, I've been looking at it uh, a lot because we think it could be really useful for medicine, for healing. So if you have a type of regenerative cell, like a stem cell that you could put on, say, a wound, you could heal the wound very quickly or even down the line potentially help people regrow hands or entire limbs, which would be really cool, although that is still very much in the realms of science fiction uh, at the moment. Mm. But what this team at the University of New South Wales, which was led by haematologists John Pimander and the lead author was Dr. Avani Yola, is they were looking at creating a new type of stem cell called induced multipotent stem cell. And the really cool thing about this is they make them from human fat, so they're very easily accessible, unfortunately for a lot of us. The thing that was really great about these induced multipotent stem cells, which as far as I'm aware just from looking at this and, and from the article itself, completely uncharted territory, they're just much safer and more effective. So they have two advantages. They can act like chameleons, is the quote from the, the lead author, and they blend into the tissue and they can try and transform into basically any type of tissue, which is really unusual because we have had tissue-specific stem cells. So stem cells that can then turn into, for example, heart tissue specifically or skin tissue specifically, but couldn't turn into anything else, which are obviously kind of limited because they don't turn into one thing. And we've also had previously induced pluripotent stem cells, which can't be directly injected into humans because they carry a risk of turning into tumours. Oh, uh, Yeah, which is not what you want. That's the opposite of what you want. <laughs> uh, but these IMS cells can both turn into basically any other type of tissue and don't seem to cause tumors at all so far they've only used them on mice they injected these human ims cells into mice where they stayed dormant uh, but then when the mice had an injury then the stem cells were able to adapt to the surroundings and transformed into the tissue that needed repairing and it transformed into muscle into bone into cartilage and into blood vessels so really really incredible and as i was saying you know, this is the yeah. kind of thing that could help us regrow lost limbs uh, down the line and uh, you know i should stress even this research is in very very early stages i've only tried it in mice mm. long way from being used in human trials but it looks really successful so far and one of the added benefits yeah. is they said it's actually a really simple process they take the fat and then they expose it to a compound that causes the cells to lose their original identity. So it stops being fat cells and kind of reverts to being the fundamental sort of stem cells. But it also loses these things called silencing marks, which is what restricts the cell identity. So it's what says to the cell, you can only become a fat cell. So this compound is able to get rid of both of those. And because it's the person's own cells, there's no risk of rejection like there is with other organ transplants yeah. and things, which is brilliant. And just to mention one last person, so Dr. Vasha Chandrakanthan, who is the, another co-senior researcher on the paper, he says that they'd be looking at two potential possibilities for clinical application for this. So one is where you could take some stem cells, incubate them in a machine, and then when ready, they, they've been reprogrammed, uh, you basically inject them back into the patient. But they've also mm. looked at they could 
potentially put them into a a kind of mini pump um like a pacemaker and put that in the person so if someone was at Mm -hmm. risk of say a heart injury happening or they had a weak heart and they needed something that could repair it kind of as and when was needed you could have this little pacemaker that would pump out the stem cells and they turn into the heart cells to help repair it that's so cool can you maybe talk a little bit more about two things you mentioned which help a cell keep its identity and that this strips both of them away. Could you just go back over those and what's the exact function of those? Yeah, of course. So the compound that they use to do this is a combination of azacitidine, which is a drug used in blood cancer therapy, and then a naturally occurring growth factor. And those are the two compounds that they use to reprogram the cells. Yeah, so what exposing it to this compound does is it causes the cells to lose their original identity. So that's what I was saying before. They basically, stem cells are kind of like a fundamental building cell. The second thing it does is it removes uh, silencing marks. Silencing marks? Yeah, so that's what restricts a cell identity. So this is basically that says stem cells with a silencing mark, basically if it has, say, for example, a fat silencing mark, it means it can only become fat. So it can be either a stem cell or fat and it kind of can, well, using this method, it can go between the two. But what this method does specifically is it removes that mark. So it basically says you can grow up to be anything you want, Mr. Stem Cell or Mrs. Stem Cell or non-binary stem cell. This is what allows it to become anything. Because before you'd have stem Mm. cells for fat. Yeah, exactly. These are called induced multipotent stem cells. And these are, as far as we're aware, completely new. What we've had previously are tissue-specific stem cells. So these are things that didn't lose those silencing marks. So they could only become fat or bone or skin or what have you. Heart or, yeah. And then the other type they had was induced pluripotent stem cells but they found that they carry a risk of developing tumours. So they almost too much the other way. They can develop into lots of things, including things they shouldn't be developing into. And is, is that a potential risk with these ones, I suppose, because they have the silencing marks absent? From the tests on mice, and again, just to stress, they're still early stages. There'd mm. be a long way from oh, totally. testing this in yeah. humans. But there was no sign of unwanted tissue growth at all in the mice. They were able to adapt That's to a range of different tissues. In terms of functionality, they'd be much better from what we can see so far. Mm. That's a really cool story. I'm surprised that didn't come up in um, what I've been reading recently. I hadn't heard about this before. I think it is is because it's just so early on. One of the co-authors does say that a real-world delivery of this could take up to 15 years, so we could still be that far away from it. But, you know, very much their aim is to have it available to patients in the future and say as well i'm putting in the fact that this could regrow limbs that's kind of what what i'm reading could be a possibility at the moment they're very much looking at this as being able to repair stressed hearts that are stressed from you know age or obesity or something like that it's a really cool story ben that's a really cool story my second story is actually also a kind of early stage thing it's about astronomers having discovered what may or may not be a new planet but a planet where it's not really supposed to be it's in the alpha centauri a system that's our next door neighbor right it is 4.3 uh light years away hey last time we recorded this you gave me the exact measurement of meters yeah i know i felt that that was useless then as well (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay yeah light years is probably a bit more useful it's more than hurdling distance that's re- I've never heard that as an analogy before. It's more than hurdling distance. Well, that might be because I just made it up. <laughs> <laughs> so we've discovered a planet. Uh, wh- why shouldn't it be there? Well, Alpha Centauri is a binary system. And as far as we know, and to be fair, our theories in this area are not conclusive by any means because we don't have a massive data set. As far as we know, planets shouldn't really be able to form in binary star systems. Well, at least that's the, that's the conventional view of planet formation. 
some people reckon that it is possible but in general it's it's a case of like no we think you know around solo stars you get an accretion disk and then things can clump together whereas there's just too much disturbance when you have two gravity wells interfering with each other even asteroid belts stuff in a stable orbit because where is the stable orbit between two binary stars right like a figure of eight orbit could you not do that you could also remember the stars are moving in relation to each other so that figure of eight (laughs) if the stars were like stock still then that could potentially work but they're they're not I always actually forget that when you when you think of modeling things on a galactic scale or on a, that kind of scale, I always forget that, oh yeah, the planet's orbiting, but then the moons are orbiting, the stars are orbiting, and then they're all flying around a galaxy, which is flying around through the universe, and you kind of think, oh, there's so many actual moving parts to all this. It's, it's a lot more complicated, and I can't wrap my head around it. It's that classic joke, isn't it? You know, why are physicists monogamous? Because they can't solve the three-body problem. <laughs> but yeah, to come back to the planet, if it is a planet... what they've said their chief engineer at breakthrough initiatives it's a bunch of different space related projects which are funded by an entrepreneur based in silicon valley the entrepreneur is yuri milner which is good because that's something we need but his um chief engineer pete klopper i'm sorry pete if i'm mispronouncing that said we detected something which is probably the best thing i've heard anyone in science say in a while it's like yeah yeah detected something just don't know what so do you know what it looks like to them? Like, what have they actually got? It's a, it's a blurry image. Someone's thumb over the lens, or well, actually, a thumb over the lens is kind of how they managed to observe it in the first place. But we'll we'll get to that. Okay. What they've got and what their imaging looks like is several pixels of brighter stuff than space. So. Of course, you might just go, isn't that just Alpha Centauri? I was thinking that. The type of telescope they're using is called Coronagraph. This is sort of what I meant by holding the thumb up thing <laughs> that you mentioned. Okay. A Coronagraph works by having a disk or some other way of blotting out a star's light. So it doesn't filter that into the system at all. I see. Yeah, exactly. So if you're looking at a star, for example, it will be very hard to see something that's only a little bit brighter than space that's right next to it Mm. you know like say earth from say if you were looking at us from the alpha centauri so you'd want to block out sol's light it's a bit like holding your thumb over that bit of the lens but it's much more precise than that it's like doing that but with the scientific method attached and lots of precision but yeah that's how they were able to detect it so what they've actually detected is a fairly pixelated image but with a large blob of much brighter pixels than is otherwise visible and it's definitely something that's what they're convinced of but of course it's going to take an independent observation to track that down but that will happen someone will do this and even if it's not a planet even if it's say a collection of debris in a stable orbit that in itself is amazing right because that is a stable orbit in a binary system this will change the consensus on well maybe not immediately but it will it will begin to be a shift in the consensus of how planets form which is really exciting because that opens up the possibility of a lot more planets orbiting a lot more stars. I think one of the really important things about this is it means that Tatooine will actually become scientifically credible. Oh, you know what? I hadn't made that connection. But yeah, you're right. That had two stars, didn't it? Yeah. I actually had to just look up. My brain was telling me there's definitely planet, famous planets in science fiction that have two suns and I can't for the life of me remember what they are. So I've got a feeling it's Tatooine, but I can't remember. And it was. I thought it might be Arrakis from the Dune series, but that has two moons, not two suns. Dune's great. I love Dune. That's a really cool story, but 
if this actually is a planet and it's one very close to us, what's the likelihood we might actually try and inhabit it in the, the far future? Well, far future, yeah, it depends how optimistic you are. If you're the kind of person who thinks that humanity will spread out among the stars, then it's probably a good candidate because it's in the habitable zone. That's, you know, where you want to be because that's where you get liquid water and that's kind of useful as a person. We do like that stuff. But this is, you know, you're talking long, very, very long term here. Like you you probably would need to be looking at something like an Albuquerque drive being commercially available. That requires a lot, you know, exotic matter that we really don't know with negative mass. And we just don't know how to make that at the moment. Like we don't know if it's even possible to make it. We're talking like a type two, maybe even type three on the civilization scale, on the Kardashev scale. Yeah, fully type one to be sure. I don't know if you would need to be type 2 or not. I think a type 1, because it's to do with the amount of energy you use as a civilization. Mm. So a type 1 civilization is like you use the full resources of your star, right? Or is it the full resources of the planet? Type 1 is the full resources of the planet. Type 2 is energy radiated by its own star. Yeah, so basically able to construct a Dyson sphere. I don't think you would need to be able to do that to have interplanetary travel working out for you. But to be able to turn it into a habitable planet i suppose that was what i was thinking it may well be habitable now it's in the habitable zone you know it'd be harder to terraform mars the the challenge with getting to alpha centauri is distance even though it's our next door neighbor yeah exactly because a light year is of course the distance that you know you can travel in in a year if you are a beam of light traveling through a vacuum we can't go that fast i think the fastest thing we've created is it's less than one percent of the speed of light and you're talking about stuff that's been traveling for like 30 years through the vacuum of space propelled by rockets it's difficult <laughs> to get it's difficult to get fast and it's even harder to do that with a human being because we like mass and you know physical reality and stuff like that yeah you know we need to eat or at the very least we need to have some way of ensuring that our our physical self or at least at the very minimum our minds and um, we're able to survive the journey and you can talk about cryostasis or that but we still you know even if we look at that we don't have the technology to bring someone back after they've been frozen we just don't have that at the moment like we can do it with thumbs if you get your thumb on ice that's a good thing because you can get reattached but freezing a whole human we just don't wake up from that there's a lot of barriers to inhabiting it but the planet itself isn't one of them of course, if you're a pessimist, then of course we don't get that far um, as a species. I believe we will get that far. And I also think when we get there, we'll probably have to use duckweed to terraform it. Or we might use duckweed. Ah, oh, this is the segue we're going for. We're trying to segue for like 15 minutes and you just kept talking. <laughs> I honestly thought you were asking me about habitability of the planet in a genuine way. I didn't realise we were in a segue. But now I know I've been in a happy place for 15 minutes. No, I, I, I genuinely was, but I thought you'd only answer quickly. I didn't realise you'd take 15 <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> if you if you want, we can talk about habitability more. I, I am all about that terraforming. Yeah, so this is my story on duckweed, which is formerly known as Wolfia. Wolfia? As in, like, more wolfy? Well, it's W-O-L-F-F-I-A, and that's the, the base genus, because the one they study in this specifically is Wolfia australiana, because Wolfia is found on every continent except Antarctica. And it's really cool, because it is the fastest growing plant known, but the reason for it being so successful and being found everywhere has been a bit of a mystery to scientists. But because of the incredible science of genome sequencing, 
this might help us take a bit of a leap forward in it. So scientists from the Salk Institute have been looking at Wolfia's genome. I'm going to call it duckweed. It just sounds, I don't know, it sounds better. But they really want to understand how plants decide what their survival strategy is going to be and then look at the genes underlying that. So Wolfie is really interesting because it's optimised entirely for growth, which means it has very few plant defences and it also doesn't really put down roots or anything. So some plants, for example, a cactus has obviously gone for having very good defences by growing spine needles, but that means it grows more slowly. Put it mm. into context, duckweed, it looks like tiny floating green seeds and each plant's only about the size of a pinhead and there's no roots, just a single few stem leaf structure and you find it kind of yeah floating on fresh water. But it reproduces similar to yeast. So by that I mean a daughter bud kind of splits off from the mm. mother bud but it can do that in as little okay. as a day so you could end up doubling the amount of duckweed you had in a day that's like a gray goose scenario isn't it like that's where you have like the micro microscopic machines which double every day yeah exactly but it's really interesting because the way they studied the genome was by growing wolfia under light dark cycles which is often what affects plants growth is often regulated by light and dark cycle and they found out that wolfia only has half the number of genes that are regulated by the light-dark cycle compared to other plants, which basically all the genes that would limit its growth in favour of other things have the plants basically gotten rid of them it doesn't use them anymore so does it not need light to grow then it does still need light to grow but my understanding of this is a lot of plants would use the light day uh, the light dark cycle to regulate their growth so that they'd only grow at optimum times and so some of the genes would limit exactly how they can grow and when they can grow because it you know there's always other trade-offs that it's thinking about like okay i don't want to grow now i need to store some energy because it's going into a longer dark cycle for example yeah yeah uh, and it's just gotten rid of those genes so it just goes for kind of growth 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 that's its survival strategy and, and you know it's working very yeah. well they were also looking at genes that are associated with things like defense mechanisms and root growth and it's managed to shed a lot of those genes as well so because it does just focus mm. entirely on fast growth and what this insight is doing what this study is enabling them to do is to look at how plants actually develop their survival strategy and how they grow and you know with the technologies like CRISPR we could then potentially use that to develop our own kind of custom plants that could be really useful for solving some big issues in the world so wolfia is actually already eaten in some parts of the world so in southeast asia it's known as kainam and that translates as water eggs uh, so it's already eaten in some places but if you have a food source that you can grow very quickly and now that we understand the genomes could potentially tailor to grow very quickly or add in other genomes for example make it higher protein or put certain vitamins in it then it could be a very useful food source for a growing population and one that's already facing food shortages so that's just a, re a really really cool impact of it and because it's a very simple plant because it has gotten rid of a lot of the genes it's enabled the scientists to really understand the fundamentals about okay so this is how plants genes regulate their growth and all the different things so we can apply this to other plants as well so the main investigator was professor joseph ecker who is also a professor of Salk's genomic analysis laboratory uh, sorry he was a co-author of the paper and then the other co-author was todd michael who is the first author of the paper and he is a research professor in Salk's Plant Molecular and Cellular Biology Laboratory. Cool. You kept mentioning that they shed genes. That's kind of interesting to me because I've always understood that like a lot of the older species that have been around for a long time, they tend to accumulate randomly large genomes mm. in some cases, sometimes not. Is this common in plants then to like totally shed large parts of the genome or uh, I don't know how much it has shed 
I don't think it is common. I think they were looking again. This article doesn't actually go into that, but I think this is a survival strategy that Wolfie has taken, and it's turned out to be very successful. But probably could equally have, or there's probably a very high chance of it not working out at all. So I, I suppose sense. a way of thinking about yeah. it is it's almost like a cheater that has optimized itself for speed at the cost of not mm. being very strong or very aggressive. Cheetah can't stand up to a lion in a fight, for example, but it can outrun it over, over a relatively short distance. It's an ecological niche, isn't yes. it? Yes. A place where you get so good at that one thing that just no one else in your ecosystem can compete with you. Yeah, and I think it just has worked out for it. Like, it, clearly, the, it's... I imagine that, you know, subspecies and branch species back in the dim distance time tried other methods, but just being able to grow very, very quickly meant that the species carried on surviving. And so that was the, the genome that stuck around. And then I think that led into, you know, the quicker it can grow, it needed to remove genes that limited the growth yeah, or... It's not using them, yeah. is it? Yeah. Because again, if you want to put a lot of your energy into growing, you want to put less energy into mm. other things and having a more complex genome would necessarily take up more energy. It's not only giving quite a fundamental understanding of plants that we didn't have before or helping towards that, but they're also already looking at how this could actually have practical applications like being a food source that could be grown in small urban farms or vertical farms. Because Vertical farms are so cool. They really are, yeah. And again, it's like we were talking about on the last episode about being able to grow your own water filters at home. I love the idea of just having like a small plant pot outside on your balcony, but that can grow basically grow a salad for you or even something slightly more unusual like you can grow your carbs like rice equivalent for example every couple of days you've just got an entire bag of duckweed rice <laughs> or something like that i'm imagining as you say an entire bag of rice there i was imagining it like sort of packaged in a plastic <laughs> bag well we can do our new segment no context corner Oh, of course, yes. No context corner. So this is, I think this still counts as Hollage because this is definitely giving you a little bit more insight into us as hosts. But Jack, do you want to explain what we're going to talk about this time? In no context corner this time. This is something that Ben brought to my attention. We share documents about the podcast. I know it sounds like we don't plan anything, but you know, we do, we do plan bits and pieces. Um, and Ben brought my attention to something in our shared documents titled ideas list sounds normal so far neither of us really we looked at it and we don't we don't know what this is i don't remember writing it ben doesn't remember writing it so i'll read you a small sample one sentence summary we could build a house made of gingerbread and charge people to see the blueprints bulleted details blueprints will be available online here and there is a link to www.not.com a real URL. Second bullet point. We'd build it using fresh gingerbread. Third bullet point. Estimate amount of ginger required. 24 kilograms. Just to highlight there as well, that was the estimated amount of ginger we'd need. And ginger, I think we may have worked this mm. out before, but it's only a relatively small proportion of gingerbread as a yes. whole ingredient. Like, it's mainly there for the flavour. So 24 kilos of gingerbread of ginger would make a lot of a very big gingerbread house yeah it's like, it's like two thousand kilos you would have to be a very ambitious baker to undertake this i mean if anything it shows the futility of trying to build a gingerbread house actually. the thing i love yeah. about this is we were going to build the gingerbread house and then the money-making idea was to sell the blueprints not the house itself or not to like charge people to I see know. the house or eat the house i don't know if the purpose here is to try and make money I'm not I'm not convinced that it is because then why did we say we should charge people to see the blueprints? 
I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea what the purpose of this document is. Because it's not a list of ideas. It's to, it's one idea. And it's not... I don't really see how it ties into the podcast at all. Yeah. And we, we should mention, I... Because we've started thinking about new ideas just in general around the podcast, not just for segments and things on the podcast itself, but also for what we could do outside of the podcast, but related to the podcast. And I came across this and we you'd think maybe we did this in December. So around Christmas time, that would make sense. We did it in April yes. of 2020. Last year. So yeah, this could be a fevered lockdown dream that we had and then one of us re- we we think it was jack by the way because only jack would go to the effort of putting not a real url because <laughs> he wanted the hyperlink but he didn't want it to go anywhere <laughs> it's beautifully structured you know it's nonsense but it's beautifully structured nonsense and of the two of us i think i'm pretty good with structure i think I, i'm good with structure as well in a list like this but i never use dashes for my bullet points i use bullet points like a normal person jack uses dashes so why would you use bullet points you have to click to use the bullet point you just go dash space you've got a bullet point but if i click to use bullet points once then i don't have to do dash space every time no but you don't uh, you don't with dashes either google docs will interpret them as as bullet points i don't know my way seems just as quick <laughs> and also much more aesthetically pleasing yeah, I, you are the one who cares more about aesthetics out of the two of us. <laughs> that's true. That's very true. <laughs> so that's it. No no empathy game today. We're giving you an insight into the <laughs> mad things we scribbled down in April 2020. Well, one mad thing we scribbled down. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting um, segment to try and keep going because... Um, We're going to have to hope we wrote hundreds of these and can discover them. Yeah, I've checked. We didn't. This is unique. <laughs> and I'm glad about that in some senses because, you know, it means maybe I, I didn't spend all my time making ideas list. bizarre <laughs> documents that don't have any meaning. <laughs> I genuinely have no memory of making this at all. And I cannot for the life of me imagine what the purpose of it is. No, one thing I've still been meaning to do actually is go back and listen to our episode Saturn is a Toaster, which was our episode that came out in April to see if we mentioned anything that was like a good this. episode. It was an excellent episode. episode. I don't remember mentioning gingerbread on that episode, but I'll have to go back and check, I think, and see. Maybe that will solve the mystery. Listeners, if you want to go back and listen to it again uh, and let us know, that'd also be great. The more of us that check, you know, the more likely we are to solve this mystery. So, you know, Saturn is a toaster, everybody. Episode 15, I believe. Which reminds me, we're going to have to rename this episode. Oh, no. Yeah, we are. Because we haven't talked about Socrates or cheeseburgers. Or Socrates cheeseburgers. No, exactly. Which was going to be the title of this show in the in the first recording, because for some reason we talked about Socrates and cheeseburgers. And you will never hear it, listeners, because the reason we have to re-record <laughs> this is because the quality was really bad on the previous one, so we're not even going to release it as a... It was awful. We've done it before where we've been able to clean up audio that wasn't very good, or where... Um, you know, segments of it were bad and stuff. And we've just, you know, we've just gone, yeah, that's fine. That's just five minutes of bad audio. But it was literally, it was the whole thing. The whole thing was just a wreck this time. Thank you very much for listening. Please subscribe to the show to never miss an episode and rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. If you'd like to get in touch, we are at Not A Buffalo Pod on Twitter and Instagram, Not A Buffalo Podcast on Facebook, or you can contact us through the website, notabuffalo.wordpress.com. Bye. Bye.